Chapter Four of The Nebuli Coat by John Mead Faulkner. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter Four. The north side of Cullen Church, which faced the square, was still in shadow, but as Westray stepped inside, he found the sunshine pouring through the south windows, and the whole building bathed in a flood of most mellow light. There are in England many churches larger than that of St. Sepulchre, and fault has been found with its proportions, because the roof is lower than in some other conventual buildings of its size. Yet for all this it is doubtful whether architecture has ever produced a composition more truly dignified and imposing. The nave was begun by Walter Lebec in 1135, and has on either side an arcade of low, round-headed arches. These arches are divided from one another by cylindrical pillars, which have no incised ornamentation as at Durham or Waltham or Lindisfarne, nor are masked with perpendicular work, as in the nave of Winchester or in the choir of Gloucester, but rely for effect on severe plainness and great diameter. Above them is seen the dark and cavernous depth of the Triforium, and, higher yet, the clerestory with minute and infrequent openings. Over all broods a stone vault, divided across and diagonally by the chevron mouldings of heavy vaulting ribs. Westray sat down near the door, and was so engrossed in the study of the building, and in the strange play of the shafts of sunlight across the massive stonework, that half an hour passed before he rose to walk up the church. A solid stone screen separates the choir from the nave, making, as it were, two churches out of one. But as Westray opened the doors between them, he heard four voices calling to him, and looking up, saw above his head the four tower arches. "'The arch never sleeps!' cried one. "'They have bound on us a burden too heavy to be borne,' answered another. "'We never sleep,' said the third. And the fourth returned to the old refrain, "'The arch never sleeps, never sleeps.' As he considered them in the daylight, he wondered still more at their breadth and slenderness, and was still more surprised that his chief had made so light of the settlement and of the ominous crack in the south wall. The choir is a hundred and forty years later than the nave, ornate early English, with a multiplication of lancet windows, which rich hood mouldings group into twos and threes, and at the east end into seven. Here are innumerable shafts of dark grey Purbeck marble, elaborate capitals, deeply undercut foliage, and broad-winged angels bearing up the vaulting shafts on which rests of the sharply pointed roof. The spiritual needs of Cologne were amply served by this portion of the church alone, and, except at confirmations or on Militia Sunday, the congregation never overflowed into the nave. All who came to the minster found there full accommodation, and could indeed worship in much comfort, for in front of the canopied stalls erected by Abbot Vinicum in fifteen thirty were ranged long rows of pews, in which green bays and brass nails, cushions and hassocks, and prayer-book boxes ministered to the devotion of the occupants. Anybody who aspired to social status in Cologne rented one of these pews, but for as many as could not afford such luxury in their religion, there were provided other seats of deal, which had indeed no bays or hassocks, nor any numbers on the doors, but were, for all that, exceedingly appropriate and commodious. The clerk was dusting the stalls as the architect entered the choir, as the hawk swoops on its quarry. Westray did not attempt to escape his fate, and hoped indeed that from the old man's garrulity he might glean some facts of interest about the building, which was to be the scene of his work for many months to come. 
but the clerk preferred to talk of people rather than of things, and the conversation drifted by easy stages to the family with whom Westray had taken up his abode. The doubt as to the Jolliffe ancestry, in the discussion of which Mr. Charnel had shown such commendable reticence, was not so sacred to the clerk. He rushed in where the organist had feared to tread, nor did Westray feel constrained to check him, but rather led the talk to Martin Jolliffe and his imaginary claims. "'Lord bless you,' said the clerk. "'I was a little boy myself when Martin's mother runned away with the soldier, yet mind well how it was in everybody's mouth. But folks in Cologne like novelties. It's all old world talk now, and there ain't one perhaps besides me and Rector could tell you that tale. Sophia Flannery her name was, when Farmer Jolliffe married her, and where he found her no one knew. He lived up at Whitcomb Farm, did Michael Jolliffe, where his father lived afore him, and a gay one he was, and dressed in yellow breeches and a blue waistcoat all his time. Well, one day he gave out he was to be married, and came into Cologne, and there was Sophia waiting for him at the Blandamer Arms, and they were married in this very church. She had a three-year-old boy with her then, and put about she was a widow. There were the many who thought she couldn't show her marriage lines if she'd been asked for them. But perhaps Farmer Jolliffe never asked to see him, or perhaps he knew all about it. Fine, upstanding woman she was, with a word and a laugh for everyone, as my father told me many a time, and she had a bit of money beside. Every quarter, up she'd go to London town to collect her rents, so she said, and every time she'd come back with terrible grand new clothes. She dressed that fine, and had such a way with her, that people called her Queen of Whitcomb. Wherever she come from, she had a boarding-school education, and could play and sing beautiful. Many a time of a summer evening, we lads would walk up to Whitcomb, and sit on the fence near the farm, to hear Sophia singing through the open window. She had a pianoforte, too, and would sing powerful long songs about captains and moustaches and broken hearts, till people was nearly fit to cry over it. And when she wasn't singing, she was painting. My old missus had a picture of flowers what she painted, and there was a lot more sold when they had to give up the farm. But Miss Jolliffe wouldn't part with the biggest of them, although the many would have liked to buy it. No, she kept that one, and has it by her to this day. A picture so big as a signboard, all covered with flowers, most beautiful. Yes, I've seen that, Westray put in. It's in my room at Miss Jolliffe's. He said nothing about its ugliness, or that he meant to banish it, not wishing to wound the narrator's artistic susceptibilities, or to interrupt a story which began to interest him in spite of himself. Well, to be sure, said the clerk, he used to hang in the best parlour at Whitcomb over the sideboard. I'd seen him there when I was a boy, and my mother was helping spring clean up at the farm. Look, Tom, my mother said to me, did he ever see such flowers? And such a pretty caterpillar going to eat them. You mind a green caterpillar down in the corner? Westray nodded, and the clerk went on. Well, Mrs. Jolliffe, says my mother to Sophia, I never want for to see a more beautiful picture than that. And Sophia laughed, and said my mother knowed a good picture when she saw one. Some folks would stand her out, she said, that twelve mirth much, but she knew she could get fifty or a hundred pound or more for it any day she liked to sell, if she took it to the right people. Then she'd soon have the laugh of those that said it were only a daub. And with that she laughed herself, for that she was always laughing and always jolly. Michael were well pleased with his strapping wife, and used to like to see the people stare when he drove her into Cologne Market in the high cart, and hear her crack jokes with the farmers what they passed on the way. Very proud he was of her, 
prouder still when one Saturday he stood all commas glasses round at the Blandomer and bid him drink to a pretty little lass what his wife had given him. Now he got a brace of em, he said, for he kept that other little boy what Sophia brought when she married him, and treated the child for all the world as if he was his very son. So twas for a year or two, till the practice camp were put up on Whitcomb Down. I mind that summer well, but twere a fearful hot one, and Joey Garland and me taught ourselves to swim in the sheep-wash down in Mayo's Meads. And there was the white tent all up the hillside, and the brass band a-playing in the evenings before the officer's dinner-tent. Sometimes they would play Sunday afternoons too, and Parson were terrible put-about, and wrote to the colonel to say us how the music took the folk away from church, and likened it to the worship of the golden calf, when the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up again to play. But colonel took no notice of it, and when twas a fine evening there was a mort of people trespassing over the downs, and some poor lasses wished afterwards they never heard no music sweeter than the clarinet and bassoon up in the gallery of Woodcombe Church. Sophia was there, too, a good few times, walking round, first on her husband's arm, and afterwards on other people's, and some of the boys said they had seen her sitting with a red coat up among the juniper bushes. "'Twas Michaelmas Eve before they moved the camp. "'Twas a sorry goose was eat that Michaelmas day at Whitcombe Farm. "'But when the soldiers went, Sophia went too, "'and left Michael and the farm and the children, "'and never said good-bye to anybody, "'not even to the baby in the cot. "'Twas said she ran off with a sergeant, "'but no one rightly knew, "'and if Farmer Jolliffe made any search and found out, "'he never told a soul, "'and she never came back to Whitcombe. "'She never come back to Whitcombe,' he said, under his breath, with something that sounded like a sigh. Perhaps the long-forgotten break-up of Farmer Jolliffe's home had touched him, but perhaps he was only thinking of his own loss, for he went on. Aye, many's the time she would give a poor fellow an ounce of backy, and many's the pound of tea she sent to a labourer's cottage. If she bought herself fine clothes, she'd give away the old ones. My missus has a fur tippet yet that her mother got from Sophie Jolliffe. She was free with her money, whatever else she might have been. "'There wasn't a labourer on the farm but what had a good word for her. "'There wasn't one was glad to see her back turned. "'Poor Michael took on dreadful at the first, though he wasn't the man to say much. "'He wore his yellow breeches and blue waistcoat just the same, "'but lost heart for business, and didn't go to market so regular as he should. "'Only he seemed to stick closer by the children, "'by Martin, that never knowed his father, "'and little Feemy, that never knowed her mother. "'So if he never come back to visit him, but what I could learn.' But once I see to myself, twenty years later, when I took the osses over to sell at Beacon Hill Fair. That was a black day, too. T'was the first time Michael had to raise the wind by selling aught of his'n. He got powerful thin then, that poor master, and couldn't fill the blue whiskert and willow breeches like he used to. And they weren't nothing so gay by them themselves, neither. Tommy said, that's me, you know, take these here osses over to Beacon Hill and sell em for as much as ye can get, for I want the money. "'What, sell the best team, Dad?' says Miss Feemy, for she was standing by. "'You never sell the best team with white face and old striker-light.' And the horses looked up, for they knowed their names very well when she said em. "'Don't he take on, lass,' he said. "'We'll buy em back again, come Lady Day.' And so I took em over, and knew very well why he wanted the money, for Mr. Martin had come back from Oxford with a nice bit of debt about his neck, and couldn't turn his hand to the farm, went about saying he was a Blandaver, and fording and all the lands belonged to he by right. Queries he was making, he said, and gadded about here and there, spending a mort of time and money, and making inquiries that never came to nothing. 
It was a black day that day, and a thick rain falling at Beacon Hill, and all the turf cut up terrible. The poor beasts was wet through, too, and couldn't look their best, because they knew they was going to be sold. And so the afternoon come, and never a bid for one of them. "'Poor old master,' says I to the horses. "'What'll he say when we get back again?' "'Yet I was glad-like to think me and they weren't going to part.' "'Well, there we was a standing in the rain, "'and the farmers and the dealers just give us a glimpse "'and pass by without a word. "'Till I see someone come along, "'and that was Sophia Jolliffe. "'She didn't look a year older, nor when I met her last, "'and her face was the only cheerful thing we saw that afternoon, "'as fresh and jolly as ever.' She wore a yet a mackintosh with big buttons, and everybody turned to measure her up as she passed. There was a horse-dealer walking with her, and when the people stared, he looked at her just so proud as Michael used to look when he drove her into Cullen Market. She didn't take any heed of the horses, and she looked hard at me, and when she was passed, turned her head to have another look, and then she'd come back. "'Bain't you Tom Janaway?' says she, "'what used to work up to Whitcomb Farm?' Ay, that I be, says I, but stiff-like, for it galled me to think what she'd have done for master, and yet could look so jolly with it all. She took no note that I would lum, but whose horses is these? she asked. Your husband's, mum, I made bold to say, thinking to take her down a peg. But, law, she didn't care a rush for that, but which are my husband's? says she, and laughed fit to bust, and poked the horse-dealer in the side. He looked as if he liked a throttler. "'but she didn't mind that neither. "'What for does Michael want to sell his horses?' "'Then I lost me pluck, "'and didn't think to humble her any more, "'but just told her how things was, "'and how I'd stood the blessed day "'and never got a bid. "'She never asked no questions, "'but I see her eyes twinkle "'when I spoke of Master Martin and Miss Feemy. "'And then she turned sharp to the horse-dealer and said, "'John, these is fine horses. "'You buy these cheap-like "'and we go sell them again to-morrow.' Then he cursed and swore, and said the osses were old scraws, and he'd be damned before he'd buy such hound's meat. John, says she, quite quiet, it ain't polite to swear afore ladies. These here is good osses, and I want you to buy em. Then he swore again, but she got his measure, and there was a mighty firm look in her face, for all she laughed so. And by degrees he quieted down and let her talk. "'How much do you want for the four of em, young man?' she says. "'and I had a mind to say eighty pounds, "'thinking maybe she'd rise to that for old time's sake. "'I didn't like to say so much for fear of spoiling the bargain. "'Come,' she says, "'how much? Art thou dumb? "'Well, if I won't fix the price, I'll do it for ye. "'Here, John, you bid a hundred for this lot.' "'He stared, stupid-like, but didn't speak. "'Then she looked at him hard. "'You've got to do it,' she said, speaking low, but very firm. "'And that he comes with, "'Here, I'll give ye a hundred. Before I had time to say done, she went on, No, this young man says no. I can see it in his face. He don't think tis enough. You try him with a hundred and twenty. Twas as if he were overlooked, for he says quite mild, Well, I'll give thee a hundred and twenty. Aye, that's better, says she. He says that's better. And she takes out a little leather wallet from her bosom, holding it under the flap of her waterproof so that the rain shouldn't get in, and cuts out two dozen clean banknotes and puts them into my hand. There were many more where they came from, for I could see the book was full of them. And when she saw my eyes on them, she takes out another, and gives it to me with, "'There's one for thee, and good luck to ee. Take that, and buy a fairing for the sweetheart, Tom Janaway, and never say Sophie Flannery forgot an old friend.' 
"'Thank ye kindly, Mum,' says I. "'Thank ye kindly, and may you never miss it. "'I hope your rents do still come in regular, Mum.' "'She laughed out loud, and said there was no fear of that. "'And then she called a lad, and he led off Whiteface and Strikerlight, "'and Jenny and the cutler, and they was all gone, "'and the horse-dealer and Sophia, afore I had time to say good-night. "'She never comes into these parts again. "'At least I never seed her. "'But I heard tell she lived a score of years more after that, and died of a broken blood-vessel at Berryton Races. He moved a little further down the choir, and went on with his dusting. But Westrace followed and started him again. "'What happened when you got back? You haven't told me what Farmer Jolliffe said, nor how you came to leave farming and turn clerk.' The old man wiped his forehead. "'I wasn't going to tell you that,' he said, "'for it do fair make I sweat till to think of it. "'but you can have it if you like. "'Well, when they was gone, I was nigh dazed with such a stroke of luck, "'and said the Lord's Prayer to see I wasn't dreaming. "'But there was no such thing, "'and so I cut a slit in the lining of my waistcoat "'and dropped the notes in, "'all except the one she gave me for myself, "'and that I put in my fob-pocket. "'It was getting dark, and I felt numb with cold and wet, "'what was standing so long in the rain, "'and not having bite nor sup all day. "'Tis a bleak place, Beacon Hill.' and t'was so soft underfoot that day the water had got inside my boots till they fair bubbled if I took a step. The rain was falling steady, and sputtered in the naphtha lamps that they was beginning to light up outside the booths. There was one powerful flare outside a long tent, and from inside there came a smell of fried onions, and made my belly cry, "'Please, master, please!' "'Yes, my lad,' I said to one, "'I'm darned if I won't don't humour ye, that shan't go back to Whittacombe empty.' So in I step, and found the tent mighty warm and well lit, with men smoking and women laughing and a great smell of cooking. There was long tables set on trestles down the tent, and long benches beside them, and folks eating and drinking, and a counter across the end of the room, and great tin dishes simmering atop of it, trotters and sausages and tripe, bacon and beef and cauliflowers, cabbages and onions, blood puddings and plum duff. Seemed like a chance to change my back note and see there were twere good and not elf money the folks have found turned to leaves in their pocket. So up I walks, and bids them give me a plate of beef and jack pudding, and holds up my note for it. The maid, for it was a maid behind the counter, took it, and then she looks at it, and then at me, for I were very wet and muddy, and then she carries it to the gaffer, and he shows it to his wife, who holds it up to the light, and then they all fall to talking, and showed it to a size man, who was there marking down the casks. The people sitting nigh saw what was up, and fell to staring at me, till I felt hot enough and leave to leave my note where twas and get out and back to Whitcomb. But the size man must have said twere all right, for the gaffer comes back with four gold sovereigns and nineteen shillings, and makes a bow, and says, "'Your servant, sir, can I give you something to drink?' I looked round to see what liquor there was, being main glad all the while to find the note were good, and he says, "'Rum and milk is very helping, sir.' "'Try the rum and milk hot.' "'So I took a pint of rum and milk "'and sat down at the nice table, "'and the people as were waiting to see me "'took up, made room now, and stared "'as if I'd been a lord. "'I had another plate of beef, "'and another rum and milk, "'and then smoked a pipe, "'knowing they wouldn't make no mother "'of my being late that night at Whitcombe "'when I brought back two dozen banknotes. "'The meat and drink heartened me, "'and the pipe and the warmth of the tent "'seemed to dry me clothes "'and take away the damp. "'and I didn't feel the water any longer in my boots. "'The company was pleasant, too, 
and some very genteel dealers sat near. "'My respects to you, sir,' says one, holding up his glass to me. "'Best respects. These poor folk isn't used to the flimsies, and was a bit surprised at your paper money. But directly I see you, I says to my friends, "'Mates, that gentleman's one of us. That's a money man, if ever I see one. I knew you for a gentleman the minute you come in.' So I was flattered like, and thought if they made so much of one banknote, what do they say to know I'd got a pocket full of them? But didn't speak nothing, only chuckled a bit, to think I could buy up half the dent if I had a mind to. After that I stood em drinks, and they stood me, and we passed a very pleasant evening, the more so because when we got confidential, and I knew they were men of honour, I proved that I was worthy to mix with such, by showing em I had a packet of banknotes handy. They drank more respects and one of them said as how the liquor we were swallowing weren't fit for such a gentleman as me. So he took a flask out of his pocket, and filled me a glass of his own tap, what his father had bought in the same year as Waterloo. It was powerful strong stuff, that. Made me blink to get it down. But I took it with a good face, not liking to show I didn't know old liquor when it come my way. So we sat till the tent was very close, and then hissing naphtha lamps burnt dim with tobacco smoke. It was still raining outside, you could hear the patter heavy on the roof, and where that was a belly in the canvas, the water began to come through and drip inside. There was some rough talking and wrangling among folk who had been drinking, and I knew I'd had as much as I could carry myself, because my voice sounded like someone's else's, and I had to think a good bit before I could get out the words. It was then a bell rang, and the size man called out, Closing time, and the gaffer behind the counter said, Now, nah, my lads, good night to ye. Hope the fleas won't bite ye. God save the Queen, and give us a merry meeting to-morrow. So all got up, and pulled their coats over their ears to go out, except half a dozen which was too heavy, and was let lie for the night on the grass under the trestles. I couldn't walk very firm myself, but my friends took me one under each arm, and very kind of them it was, for when we got into the open air, I turned sleepy and giddy-like. I told them where I lived to, and they said, Never fear, they'd see me home and you were cut through the fields what's take us to Whitcomb much shorter. We started off, and went a bit in the dark, and then the very next thing I knowed was something blowing in my face, and woke up and found a white heifer snuffing at me. It was broad daylight, and me lying under a hedge and among the cuckoo pints. I was wet through and muddy, for it was a loamy ditch, and a bit dazed still, and, and sore ashamed. But when I thought of the bargain I made for master, and of the money I got in my waistcoat, I took heart, and reached in my hand to take out the notes, and see they weren't wasted with the wet. But there was no notes there. No, not a bit of paper, for all I turned my waistcoat inside out and ripped up the lining. It was only half a mile from Beacon Hill that I was lying, and I soon made my way back to the fairground, but couldn't find my friends of the evening before, and the gaffer in the drinking tent said he couldn't remember, as he'd ever seen any such. I spent the live long day searching here and there, till the folks laughed at me, because I looked so wild with drinking the night before, and was sleeping out, and with having nothing to eat, for every penny was took from me. I told the constable, and he took it all down, but I see him looking at me the while, and at the torn lining hanging out under my waistcoat, and knew he thought twas only a light tale, and that I had the drink still in me. It was dark before I give it up, and turned to go back. The seven-mile good by the nighway from Beacon Hill to Whitcomb, and I was dog-tired and hungry, and that shamed, I stopped a half-hour on the bridge over Proud's Millhead, wishing to throw myself in and have done with it, but couldn't bring my mind to do that, and so went on, 
and got to Whitcomb just as they was going to bed. They stared at me, Farmer Michael and Master Martin and Miss Feemy, as if I was a spirit when I told my tale. But I never said as how twas Sophia Joliffe as had brought the horses. Old Michael, he said nothing, but had a very blank look on his face. And Miss Feemy was crying, but Master Martin broke out saying twas all make-up and I'd stole the money and they must send for a constable. "'Tis lies,' he said. "'This fellow's a rogue, and too great a fool even to make up a tale that'll hang together. "'Who's going to believe a woman to buy the team "'and give a hundred and twenty pounds in notes for horses that'd be dear at seventy pounds? "'Who was the woman? Do you know her? "'There must be many in the fair who'd know such a woman. "'They ain't so common as to go about with their pockets full of banknotes "'and pay double price for horses that they buy.' "'I knew well enough who bought them, "'but didn't want to give her a name for fear of grieving Farmer Jolliffe more or he was grieved already. So said nothing, but held me peace. Then the farmer says, Tom, I believe he. I've known he thirty year, and never known he tell a lie, and I believe he now. But if thou knows her name, tell it us, and if thou doesn't know, tell us what she looked like, and maybe some of us'll guess her. But still I didn't say aught till Master Martin goes on. Out with her name. He must know her name right enough, if there ever was a woman as did buy the osses. And don't you be so soft, father, as to trust such fool's tales. We'll get a constable for he. Out with her name, I say. And I was nettled-like at his speaking so rough, when the man that suffered had forgiven me, and said, Yes, I know her name right enough, if ye will have it. Twas the missus. Missus, he says. What missus? Your mother, says I. She was with a man, but he weren't the man she'd run away from here with, and she made he bide to the time. Master Martin didn't say any more, and Miss Feeney went on crying, but there was a blanker look come on old Master's face, and he said very quiet, "'There, that'll do, lad. I believe thee, and I forgive thee. Don't matter much to I, now, if I've lost a hundred pound. Tis only my luck, and if it weren't lost there, twould just as like be lost somewhere else. Go in and wash thyself, and get somewhere to eat, and if I forgive thee this time, don't he ever touch the drink again.' Master, I says, I thank ye, and if I ever get a bit of money, I'll pay thee back what I can, and there's my sacred word I'll never touch the drink again. I held him out my hand, and he took it, for all was so dirty. That's right, lad, and tomorrow we'll put the police on to trace them fellows down. I kept my promise, Mr. Mr. Uh, Westray, the architect suggested. I didn't know your name, you see, because Rector never introduced me yesterday. I kept my promise, Mr. Westray, and been tin total ever since. But he never put the police on the track, for he was took with a stroke next morning early, and died a fortnight later. They led him up to Whitcomb Nye's father and his grandfather, what have green rails round their graves, and give his yellow breeches and blue waistcoat to Timothy Ford, the shepherd, and he wore them a Sundays for many a year after that. I left farming the same day as old master was put underground, and come into Cologne, and took odd jobs till the sexton fell sick, and then I helped dig graves, and when he died they made I sexton, and that were forty years ago, come Whitson. Did Martin Jolliffe keep on the farm after his father's death? Westray asked, after an interval of silence. They had wandered along the length of the stalls as they talked, and were passing through the stone screen which divides the minster into two parts. The floor of the choir at Cologne is higher by some feet than that of the rest of the church, 
when they stood on the steps which led down into the nave, the great length of the transepts opened before them on either side. The end of the north transept, on the outside of which to once stood the chapter-house and dormitories of the monastery, had only three small lancet windows high up in the wall. But at the south end of the cross-piece there is no wall at all, for the whole space is occupied by Abbot Vinicum's window, with its double transoms and infinite subdivisions of tracery. Thus is produced a curious contrast, for while the light in the rest of the church is subdued to sadness by the smallness of the windows, and while the north transept is the most sombre part of all the building, the south transept, or Blandema Isle, is constantly in clear daylight. Moreover, while the nays if of the Norman style, and the transepts and choir of the early English, this window is of the latest perpendicular, complicated in its scheme, and meretricious in the elaboration of its detail. The difference is so great as to force itself upon the attention even of those entirely unacquainted with architecture, and it has naturally more significance for the professional eye. Westray stood a moment on the steps as he repeated his question. "'Did Martin keep on the farm?' "'Ah, he kept it on, but he never had his heart in it. Miss Feemy did the work, and would have been a better farmer than her father, if Martin had let her be. But he spent a penny for every apenny she made, till all came to the hammer. Oxford puffed him up, and there was no one to check him. So he must needs be a gentleman, and give himself all kinds of airs, till people called him Gentleman Jolliffe, and later on Old Nebley, when his mind was weaker. "'Twas that turned his brain,' said the sexton, pointing to the great window. "'Twas the silver and green what done it.' Westray looked up, and in the head of the centre-light saw the nebuli coat shining among the darker-painted glass, with a luminosity which was even more striking in daylight than in the dusk of the previous evening. End of chapter 4